Uh, open up your Bibles if you've got one. Uh, we're actually just going to track through this passage verse by verse by verse, one at a time. Uh, so open it up to John chapter 20 and verse 24. Um, we're going to look at a guy, one of Jesus' disciples called Thomas today. And this is actually really cool, like I mentioned, that we're kicking off Alpha right away because Thomas is the disciple who's actually best known in uh, all of the scriptures for being a skeptic. He's got questions. He's got doubts about the risen Jesus. And this lands in the context of uh, Easter. So last weekend was Easter, Good Friday. We saw Jesus go to the cross, lay down his life, crucified to take on the sins and the guilt and the shame of you and of me and of the entire world on the cross, crucified, chose to lay down his life for us. He was buried. And then three days later on Easter Sunday, he miraculously rose. And we actually believe that as Christians. We believe that it's not just a metaphor. It wasn't a hallucination. It's not just like a spirit or something weird like that, something ghosty. But Jesus actually literally, physically, bodily rose from the grave by the power of God. And what he did, uh, if you were around last Sunday, if not, he appeared to the disciples. So they were gathered. So Easter Sunday, Jesus rose. That night, the disciples gather together to worship and be together. And then Jesus, the risen Jesus, shows up in their midst. And he does this beautiful thing where the disciples are distraught because they just watched Jesus be crucified. Their Savior, their Lord, their Messiah, crucified. They think that he's dead. And then boom, Jesus pops into their midst, the risen Jesus in his bodily form. And he brings to them peace. He brings his presence and he brings purpose. It's this beautiful thing. They're afraid. He shows up. And he says, Shalom Aleichem, peace of God be with you. Do not be afraid. I'm here. I've risen. I've defeated death. I've rose again. I'm here with you. His presence. Then he gives them purpose. He says, just as God the Father sent me into the world, now my disciples, I am sending you out into the world to be the light of the world, to shine, to proclaim the gospel, the good news that I've died and rose again for the sins of the world. Go and proclaim that. And he gives them the gift of his presence. If you remember, he breathes his Holy Spirit onto them. And what he's doing is he's symbolizing, he's mirroring what God the Father did way back in Genesis, start of the Bible, when he creates Adam, the first man. And it says that God breathed life into Adam, a soul. He brought Adam to life in a very real way. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm going to breathe my presence, my spirit onto you, and it's going to fill you, and I'm going to be with you. New life. Here you go. I'm sending you out into the world. Peace, presence, and purpose. And it's amazing. It's this beautiful interaction that happens. But the problem is one disciple is missing. And that's where we pick up the story. Verse 24. And we're just going to take it verse by verse. It says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So what's the lesson here? Don't skip church. (laughs) Hey, Thomas missed church, guys. He didn't show up. He was at home in his bathrobe, eating Eggo waffles, making excuses, saying, I'll go next week, right? The disciples got together that first night they gathered, but for some reason, Thomas is not with them. And actually, in all seriousness, man, we actually believe just like Jesus showed up in his risen form when the disciples were gathered, we still believe, and this is why we get together still, because we believe that the risen Jesus is here in our midst, amen? That's why we worship, man. When we sing songs and we're singing, how great is our God? And it's all these beautiful voices together. I was really scared because I thought I left my mic on when I was singing because it's terrible. But we get all these voices together, man, singing about the greatness of God, elevating God, lifting up Jesus. He is here with us. Man, sometimes when churches gather and they worship, it's like a funeral for Jesus. 
right? It's like, Jesus, you were great. You did some great things. We love you, but you're gone and dead and it's sad. No, man, he's alive, right? He rose again, amen? That's Easter, right? He's with us in our midst and we gather with anticipation that when we get together and we open up the word of God inspired by him and we sing songs about Jesus and we pray together that he's actually here with us. That's why we do this, man. We're not just doing some religious song and dance. Okay, we're not here doing Christian karaoke out here, right? Just hanging out, having a cool snack with some juice and some bread. We actually believe when we do these things, Jesus is here with us and he actually wants to meet with us and speak to us. And so we need to come to worship. There's value in it of coming here to gather and coming with anticipation in our hearts that Jesus actually wants to meet with me, with you individually today. He wants to say something to you. He wants to transform you. He wants to do something in your life. Okay, so Thomas, one of the 12, he was not with the other ones. And verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So the disciples are really fired up. They saw the risen Jesus. They're like, Thomas, you missed it, man. You shouldn't have skipped church. Jesus showed up, right? We saw him. We saw his body. We saw the piercing in his side. We saw the piercing in his hands from those nails, man. He is really truly risen. And what is Thomas's response? This is why he's been given the affectionate name over church history of Doubting Thomas, right? Because what is his response? We just read it. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, unless I place my finger into the marks of the nails, my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's a strong statement. Thomas is not willing to believe that Jesus is Lord. He's not willing to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead based purely off of the word and the testimony of his friends. He's saying, no, okay, that's great. You guys saw Jesus, but I'm not quite buying it. I need to see it. I need to hear it. I need to be in his presence. I actually need to have my own experience with Jesus before I'm gonna believe this. And this is actually okay, guys. I think we can sometimes... Um, throw some shade, throw some judgment on Thomas. Like, oh, why didn't you believe, man? Your friends believed, the other disciples, they believed. Why, why are you being so stubborn? But if we're honest, aren't we all a little bit like Thomas? And I think that's okay. We actually need to have our own personal experience with the risen Jesus. We're not always able to just listen to somebody else, a family member, a friend, somebody else who's had an experience with Jesus and is following Jesus. It's not always enough to just hear from them what they've experienced. We actually need to meet Jesus ourselves and have that experience for our own. And that's Thomas. He's not willing to believe. And um, verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Right, so eight days later, the way that they would phrase things back then, that just means a week later. So this is the next Sunday. So Thomas has had a week to just think about his doubt, think about these things that the other disciples said to him. And he's just kind of sitting and stewing in it. And then eight days later, the disciples get together again for worship. And this time, Thomas was with them. And so this is actually something really beautiful, guys, that we need to pay attention to as a church is Thomas just told the disciples, he just told his his brothers, hey, I don't believe what you believe yet. I'm not there. I'm not buying it. And what they don't do is ostracize Thomas. They don't make him feel stupid. 
They don't belittle him and they don't send him away. They don't send him packing. Thomas is with them. And this is an important point about being able to belong in a church community before you believe. And this is something we try to work really hard at as a church is, man, if you are here and you're still exploring and you've still got questions and you are not quite ready to follow Jesus, you're not quite sure what you believe in, thank you for being here. And we want to encourage you. You can be part, we want you to be part of our community. Like Thomas was still welcomed in with the other disciples. Man, come join a community group. Go to a Bible study. Come worship on Sundays and be around. And even if you don't take communion, even if you're, you don't know if you're really singing these songs from your heart, it's amazing that you're here. We want you to feel like you belong even before you believe. And full disclosure, we want you to believe because, man, we know Jesus. We love Jesus. We believe that Jesus changes everything. But don't feel like you can't be here if that's not where you are yet. And be here. Be part of this community. Belong here. And then we'll go from there. I think Jesus really honors honest doubt. See, there's a difference between honest doubting. Thomas is not quite there yet, but he's saying, I'm willing to believe. I'm willing to get there if that's where the evidence points me. And there's a difference where honest belief, that's what Thomas shows us. There's a such thing as dishonest belief where if you're just making excuses and even if you follow the evidence, even if you have an experience with Jesus, you're still not willing to believe because you're just, you don't want to believe. That's a different thing. But Jesus really honors just honest questioning, honest doubting. And so if that's you here today, man, keep coming out. Come to something like Alpha. I'm not just shamelessly plugging it because I'm leading it. Okay, we want you to be there. It's awesome. Thomas belongs before he believes. Another thing to notice about the gathering of the disciples. It says they gathered and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. That same phrase he used before, shalom aleichem, peace of God be with you. Peace of God be with you. So if you notice, uh, a week ago, Jesus showed up and he said to the disciples, don't be afraid. I'm gonna give you my spirit. I'm gonna give you my life. I'm gonna give you my power. I want you to go out into the world. I'm sending you. Just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you out into the world. And we find them a week later, still cowering, still afraid with locked doors inside. Just the opposite of what Jesus told them to do, right? He told them to go out into the world. They're still afraid. They're afraid of the Jews that they might find out that they were with Jesus and there might be some repercussions. And the reality is that fear will always keep us from mission. Fear will always keep us from growth closer to Jesus and it will keep us from actually walking in the plans and the purposes and the call that Jesus has for our lives. The disciples are not out in the world sent like Jesus tells them they should be. They're cowering behind locked doors. They're scared little Sunday Christians who they're gathering together in this little holy huddle but they're too afraid for people to come in. They're too afraid to go out into the world. And man, I just think, look at that phrase. The doors were locked. The doors were locked. I think we have walls up. I think we put locks on the doors to some areas of our church, to some areas of our lives. There's some areas where we're still afraid to let Jesus in. We're still afraid to let other people in because we're afraid. We're scared of what will happen if we open up this part of our lives to other people or open up this part of our lives and our heart to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And I'll just say, if you are, and if you feel like you're lacking spiritual power in your life, if you feel like you're lacking any real presence of God in your life, if you're lacking peace in your life, if you're afraid, if you're stunted, if you're not growing, if you're not getting out, if you're not sharing your faith, if you're not growing closer to Jesus, it might be fear getting in the way. And what you need to do is you need to ask the Holy Spirit to come in to those exact places that you're scared to open up to him and to other people. 
I love the way one author called Robert Boyd Munger put it. He said, think about your life and your heart like a house with many rooms. And he says this, we need to let Christ go beyond the living room where many want Christ to stay. We need to invite Christ into the kitchen and the dining room and transform our eating into the family room and transform our relationships into the recreation room to transform the way we spend our free time into the study to transform what we read and allow into our minds, into the bedroom to transform even the most intimate of spaces and into all the secret closets, cleansing and healing and freeing. And that's what Jesus wants to do. We open up our hearts, open up all these little dark spaces of our lives that we actually are scared to let him in and don't want him into. That's actually probably where you need him. And he doesn't want to bring more fear and more chaos into your life. He wants to bring, like he says, peace, the peace of God. Peace be with you. Paul, when he's writing to his protege, uh, Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he says, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. Not a spirit of fear, but of peace, a power of love, of self-control. What are those areas of your life that you need to welcome other people and you need to welcome the spirit of God into those spaces? And we keep going, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So the first thing to notice here is that Jesus doesn't condemn Thomas's doubts and his questioning, right? It's okay. It's okay, Thomas, that you're doubting. It's okay that you've got questions, that you've got hangups and hesitations, but I don't want you to stay there. Let's address these things head on so we can smash them down and actually move on because I want to know you. I want to welcome you into my family, Thomas. Jesus is the God who moves toward us in our doubts. He moves toward us in our insecurities, in our questions, in our fears. This is what he does. He doesn't push Thomas away. He actually knows. He knows what's on Thomas's mind. He knows exactly what, what, what he's thinking and feeling in his heart. If you think about that, Jesus wasn't present when Thomas shared that with his disciples when he said, I won't believe unless I can actually touch Jesus' wounds, Jesus wasn't there, but he's God. And so he knows exactly the thoughts and the doubts that are in Thomas's heart, and he actually moves toward those things. If you have doubts, if you have questions, Jesus is not afraid of them. He can handle them, but he actually wants to meet you in the midst of those, and he wants to walk you through the evidence. He wants to walk you through who he is and what he wants to do in your life so you can actually move beyond that and know him and love him and walk with him this beautiful thing. Jesus is not afraid of our doubts. He moves toward them. Um, I witnessed this in like the most powerful way uh, a few years ago. I was in, still back in Sydney where I was doing my theological studies and I have a buddy named uh, Bedil and he's uh, an Arabic pastor of like a big Arabic church, but they have this English congregation. So he asked me to, um, to speak at one of their retreats. And I was just like, to be honest, just like in heaven because one of my love languages is Baba Ganoush. And so it was flowing, man. It was amazing. Um, but we were at this retreat. There's about 150 people. Uh, I'm the only non-Middle Eastern person there. So it was amazing. They're charismatic. Man, if you want to have a good time, hang out with some Arabic Christians in Sydney, Australia. They party in a good way. Um, but we're, man, it was amazing. God showed up. We were preaching through the book of Ephesians. And like they have energy, dude. They're charismatic. They're filled with the spirit. They're singing and dancing all night. They're like showing me Afghani dances and stuff like that. And the energy's there. It's amazing. God shows up. People are, are confessing their sins and they're meeting Jesus and getting transformed and confessing. It's amazing. 
just this beautiful time. Actually, at one point, there was an older lady there, and I think she was at that age where, like, you know, where you can, like, say anything you want, and people just don't care because you're that old. But I was preaching, and she was just like, preach it, white boy, come on. I was like, yeah, <laughs> cool. And it was just amazing, amazing time. And I'm talking to my buddy debriefing after, and he's like, man, God showed up here. And, but I'm a little bit bummed out because there's one girl who's kind of been coming along to church and she's been a few times, but she doesn't believe yet. And she hasn't been in a while. And I invited her to this retreat and she didn't make it. She didn't come out and she's got all these doubts about Jesus. She doesn't think that Jesus actually knows her and loves her and cares about her in any way. She doesn't feel seen and noticed. And I would just, I would, lo- I would have loved it if you could have like chatted with her. I think your story would have resonated all this stuff. I'm like, okay, yeah, sorry, man. That's too bad. Um, and for the sake of her story, we'll say her, her name is Katie. And she's like, yeah, I wish you could have chatted with Katie, man. It would have been awesome. Fast forward a few months later, and I am catching a flight from Sydney to Bali, Indonesia to go and ha- have fun with my mom. It wasn't for ministry or anything like that. Um, but I'm going to have a good time going to Indonesia. And I sit down on the plane and I'm just making small talk with the person next to me. She's like, what do you do? I'm like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm a pastor. I work for my church. She's like, oh, I used to go to church a little bit okay, cool, where'd you go to church? Blah, 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 you can maybe see where this is going. Eventually, I'm like, Katie? She's like, yeah. White boy? I'm like, yeah. She's like, my friend Badil said that I need to talk to you sometime. I'm like, yeah, he told me that too. And there's five million people in Sydney. I'm sitting next to Katie on a flight from Sydney to Bali, Indonesia, months later, sitting next to her, and she goes, I think maybe God's trying to say something. I'm like, you think? <laughs> but man, this is the God who moves toward us. The God who knows our heart, who knows our mind, who's not afraid of our doubts. And we were just able to sit and talk for the whole flight. And by the end of it, she's wanting to pray together and she's wanting to, to recommit herself to Jesus and to go back to church and to actually walk with the Lord This is the God who moves toward us, man. He said, Jesus, out of his own mouth, I came, why? To seek and to save the lost. I came to move toward you. What are your doubts? Bring them to me. I want to meet you in the middle of those. That's the God that we serve. That's Jesus. He met Thomas that way. He says to Thomas, put your hands, Thomas, in my wounds. You can touch it. You can see it. I'm real. I want you to know that I'm real and I love you. Man, if you ever doubt that Jesus moves towards you, if you ever doubt that he knows you and sees you and wants you in his family, no matter how far gone you think that you are, just think about this interaction. Jesus gets Thomas to put his hands into his wounds. And I think he's not just proving the evidence, which is part of it, but he's also saying to Thomas, this is how much I love you, Thomas. You see this wound? You see this gash in my side from a spear that was driven through me to pierce through my lung? where blood and water poured out of me, I did that for you. You see these, these, these marks in my wrists where I had stakes several inches long driven through my wrists? Thomas, feel that. Feel the little hole. Feel the scar tissue. I did that for you. And that's what he's saying to us, man. If you ever doubt that, if you ever doubt his love for you, look to the cross, man. Look to his wounds. Look to the pierce in his side, That's how much he loves you. That's how much he wants you in his family. That's the length that Jesus was willing to go to buy you back to himself. That's the kind of God he is. And then verse 27, the end of it, do not disbelieve, but believe. 
Do not disbelieve, but believe. So there comes to this point where, man, once we, once we examine the evidence, once we use our reason and our rational thinking, we examine things and we, we attack things from all different angles and we see the evidence, we see the work of the Holy Spirit, we see the witness and the testimony of other people about Jesus, there does always come a point where we need to actually decide to no longer disbelieve, but believe. It comes down to that. As simple as that, man. Reason is not opposed to faith. Reason and faith go together very, very well. There's someone called Thomas Merton. He said this. He was a writer and a, he was a monk. And he said, reason is, in fact, the path to faith. And faith takes over when reason can say no more. So there comes to this point, guys, where we reason. We should reason. We should look at the evidence. We should use our brains. Do not check your brain at the door. When you're examining Christianity, when you're trying to grow with Jesus, trying to read your Bible, do it with your brain, do it with your whole mind, your whole heart, your whole body, everything. But there does come a point where, as one author said, we run the ramp of reason so that we can take the leap of faith. Reason and faith go together. And Jesus is saying there comes a time where there's actually an element of choice to believing. Where once we've examined everything, we've thought about it, we've seen the witness and the testimony, we actually have to choose, I'm gonna trust this. Jesus is real. He's actually legitimate. He actually died for me. He actually rose from the grave, literally for me. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And we look at Thomas's answer, verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. This is one of the most beautiful confessions of faith in all of the scriptures. My Lord and my God. Just notice how Thomas phrased that. He doesn't say just the Lord and the God. He's not a Lord and a God. He's not my family's Lord and my family's God, my spouse, my husband, my wife's God, my kid's God, my parents' God. No, no, no. My Lord and my God. It's personal. See, the reality is that, man, life of faith, life of walking with Jesus is not something that we can do vicariously through anybody else. We cannot piggyback off anybody else's faith. At the end of the day, it comes down to me and God. It comes down to you and God. Every single one of us faced with that choice. Am I going to put my trust, my hope, my confidence? Am I going to rely upon Jesus? Is he real? Did he die for me? Did he rise for me? Does he love me? And it's a personal thing. We all need to get to that point where we are faced with that exact decision that Jesus puts toward Thomas. Don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas says, my Lord, my God. See, Thomas needed to experience Jesus, the risen Jesus personally, for himself, And there's a huge difference between just going off of the, the testimony and the experiences of somebody else, right? Some of us, we have family, we have a spouse, we have kids, whatever, parents who believe and they love Jesus, they're walking with Jesus. But we cannot just piggyback off of their experiences. There comes a point, like Thomas, where we need to have our own encounter with the risen Lord. I love the way the great philosopher, actor Robin Williams put it. In one of my favorite films, Unless you find it offensive, then I only watched it for research. Uh, Goodwill Hunting. So it's about Robin Williams. He plays this psychiatrist who's uh, starting to meet up with this really hard-headed uh, young man called Will Hunting. He's like a genius. He's played by Matt Damon, but he's cocky, he's arrogant, and he's closed off. He won't let anybody in. He's got a damaged past, and uh, he's really smart. He's got like a photographic memory, and he reads all these books and can memorize it. And then to get through to him, Robin Williams' character, Sean, he, he says this to young Will. 
He says, well, if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? But I'll bet you, you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. If I asked you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus of your personal favorites. But you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid, Will. If I asked you about war, you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap, watched him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. I'd ask you about love, and you'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Known someone that could level you with her eyes. Feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel. To have that love for her. To be there for her forever through anything, through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in the hospital room for two months. Holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss because it only occurs when you've loved something more than you love yourself. And I doubt that you've ever dared to love anybody that much. There's a difference between reading a book about the Sistine Chapel and standing in the Sistine Chapel, smelling the air, looking up at the art, being blown away and gripped by the beauty of it. There's a difference between reading about Jesus, hearing about Jesus from somebody knowing stories about Jesus and actually walking with Jesus, knowing what that's like to have life in his name, to know that your sins are forgiven, to know that you're accepted and loved by God, to know that every sin, past, present, and future has been paid for, to walk in freedom from slavery to addiction and sin. We need to come to that point where we have that personal experience with the risen Lord, that point where we say, my Lord and my God, have you done that? Have you believed yourself? Are you just hiding behind, distracting yourself by the faith of somebody else close to you? Eventually, you need to come face to face with Jesus and go, is he my Lord? Is he my God? Jesus welcomes you in. He invites you in to that personal experience with him. In verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So that word blessed, blessed are you, those who have, uh, have not seen and have yet believed. This blessing, it's like, it's the special favor of God. It's the smile of God. It's the blessing of God on all of us who haven't seen the risen Lord in his bodily form, but we still believe. And so in one sense, that is all of us here today. Because we've never, like Thomas and like these disciples, we've never actually come into contact with the, the risen bodily Jesus. But why do we believe? We believe because we believe we have the trustworthy testimony of the apostles carried along by the Holy Spirit and the prophets who wrote this down. That this is actually the, the Holy Spirit-inspired word of God. And we have the testimony of the Holy Spirit. We see God working and moving in our friends' lives and our families' lives. And we know in the depths of our heart that that's real. And Jesus is saying this special favor on you who can believe without having seen the risen Lord. All you who believe based on the worthy testimony of these scriptures, man, thousands, thousands and thousands of manuscripts with less than, less than 1% difference between them, that less than 1% being scribal errors. 
a little comma, a little exclamation mark, a little quotation mark messed up here or there. This is a trustworthy witness. Jesus is saying there's a special blessing on those who can believe and go on believing, even though you haven't seen the risen Jesus. And that word believing, it's in the, the ongoing present tense. It means continue, keep on believing. Right? What did Journey tell us? Don't stop believing. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. Continuous, ongoing belief. What is he saying? Blessed are you. You're going to have a happier life, a blessed life, if you have this steady, rock-solid faith that believes that Jesus is present, that he loves you, and that he's working behind the scenes, even when you can't necessarily see it or hear it or feel it. Where we need to just draw near to God, like James tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's a special kind of faith that we are called to have that will bless us from God if we can trust that even when we can't understand it, see it, feel it, hear it, he is working, he loves us. We think about the ways that he has always come through in the past, always delivered us, always loved us, always been there for us, and he will always be there for us. He's never failed, he cannot fail because he's God. Jesus is saying, have that kind of faith, that steady faith, that rock-solid faith. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John wraps this up. This is really the conclusion, the thesis statement of his whole gospel He says this, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is John going, John, the gospel of John is our last gospel that was written. So this is John going, my contemporaries, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, They've told you a lot of stories about the person of Jesus. They told you about his teaching. They told you about his parables, a lot more narrative, and they killed it. They did a great job. Go read their gospels. But John is saying, I wrote my gospel because those guys covered all the stories. They covered all the teaching about what Jesus did, about what he said. John is concerned about us knowing who Jesus is, not what he said, not what he did, who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing We may have life in his name. The burning in John's heart, the burning in his bones, the burden on John's mind and his heart and his life is that we will read this. Everyone who picks up this book will actually meet in a real way, will encounter Jesus, not just what he did and said, but who he is. And we will believe, no more disbelieve, but believe. And by believing, we will have life in his name. That's John's burden. He wants us to have life. He knows that the existential cry in the depths of every human soul is, I want to live. I want to have life. I want an existence that's more than just taking in breath and oxygen, an existence that's more than just a beating heart. And the tragedy is that so many people go to their grave never actually having come alive, never having become who God made them and called them to be. This word life that John uses over and over, it's zoe, eternal life. It means not just a quantity of life, that's part of it. Eternal life, we will never die. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus will never die. Though they die, yet they will live. So we will live forever. It's like the the great uh, Pastor D.L. Moody once said. He's like, one time, guys, one day, you're gonna read in the newspaper that I am dead. Don't believe that for a second. Because in that moment, I will be more alive than I have ever been in my earthly life. I'll be more alive than any one of you. And that's the reality, eternity. But it's also, it's not just a quantity of life, it is a quality of life. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life, zoe, and life abundant. It is full and meaningful life. 
It's the kind of life John is saying and Jesus is saying, the kind of life that we cannot find on Wall Street. The life that we cannot find in a casino, the kind of life that we look for but we can't find in a one-night stand, in pornography, in a relationship, in another human being. It's the kind of life that we look for but we can never find in more money and more stuff and just buying another boat and putting money away for retirement so I can have a nice, cozy, comfortable life. That's not life. And I just wonder how many times John is just burning in his heart, man. How many times are we going to have to wreck our marriages looking for life in places that we're not going to find it? How many times are we going to shipwreck our soul looking for life in things that we're never going to find it? In money, in stuff, in sex, in whatever. John just says so clearly, it's burning in his heart for us to know that life, the kind of life that only Jesus can offer, it's only found in him, in his name in a personal relationship with him. Not a gift from Jesus. Jesus gives us life. We say, thanks, Jesus. See you later. I'll see you in heaven. No, it's in him. John is saying that the depths, the riches of life are found in the person of Jesus. You go after not more of life. Don't look inward. Don't look in yourself like our culture, like I was told every day at Lululemon when I worked there, folding leggings. Look inside yourself and you'll find yourself. No, dude. Life is not in leggings. It's not in yoga pants. I'll tell you that. But that's what our culture says, right? Look inside, you'll find life. No, no, no. Don't go after life. Don't go after fulfilling yourself. Don't go after all the stuff. Go after Jesus. More of him. Receive his love. Receive his grace, his forgiveness, his spirit, and you will find life. This is the way C.S. Lewis puts it. It's beautiful. He says, your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. This principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body. In the end, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. The life that we are searching for, the life that we are all pining for, it's not in stuff It's not in a gift from, it's in Jesus himself. Go after him and you will find life. That's the burden of, that's John's life message, man. And if nothing else, after reading 20 chapters of this book together, that is my prayer. Not that we will be able to quote more facts about Jesus. Nobody cares about that. That's not what it's about. Do you actually know Jesus? Do you have life in Jesus? That's the invitation. And think about how burdened John was to get this message out. His whole purpose of writing this was evangelistic. It's that the world would know, everyone would know. John is someone who walked with Jesus and experienced life in Jesus. So he cannot help but want everyone else to have that same life. Do you have that burden? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have life in Jesus, does it haunt you? Does it bother you at all that people in your life, people in the world around you do not have life? Does it keep you up at night? 
Does it bug you that your family members, man, I go to sleep and I wake up with like a little bit of angst in my heart. You can probably see it. A guy in my church used to say, man, I can tell because that neck vein starts going real crazy when you get weird like this. But I have an angst, man, about the family that I have, that I love, that do not know Jesus. They do not have life that is only offered in Jesus. People that I love who are headed to a lifeless eternity without God. Like John, does that haunt you at all? Do you care? As the Father sent me, I'm sending you out into the world. That was John's life story. That was John's life message. It's like C.S. Lewis also said, you've never met a mere mortal. You've never met a, a, a mortal person. Every single person that you meet, everyone at work, every friend, every person you talk with, snub, whatever, is either an immortal horror or an immortal beauty. We're all heading to eternity. We're all heading to heaven or hell. There's only life in Jesus. There's no life apart from Jesus. And that means every single relationship that you have is a significant relationship. There's no such thing as an insignificant person. How you use your words matters. How you use your time matters. How you use your resources and your money matters. How you live your life matters. And so the question is, do you have life? Are you walking in this life that only Jesus offers Romans 10 tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord like Thomas did and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, you'll have life. Do you have that life? And if you do, do you have a burden in your heart for everyone that you know to also have that life? That's what Jesus is inviting us to. I'll leave us with Robin Williams' words to goodwill. Your move, chief. Lord, we need you. We need your presence here with us. Thank you that you are here with us, Lord. I just pray for every single person here right now, Lord, that's wrestling, that has doubt, that still has questions. Lord, would you meet them? Would you speak to them, even now in this moment? That you'd place on our hearts, Lord, the urgency of knowing that our time is short and that you want us to have life in this life, in this world and for all of eternity, you offer us life, Lord, and it's only found in you, Jesus. So I pray that you'd meet us here now as we worship, as we take the Lord's Supper, as we take the bread and the juice, Lord, meet us here. If there's anyone here, Lord, that, that today just is at that point where they just, they need, they know that they need it on their heart, you've placed it on their heart, Lord, to no longer disbelieve, but to believe. That you'd open up hearts, Lord, Help us to turn to you, to trust you with our whole lives, to rely on you, to put our confidence in you for now and for all of eternity. Lord, for those of us who are comfortable, would you afflict us? Would you make us uncomfortable? Would you light a fire in our bones as you send us out into the world, Lord? That the cry of our hearts, the cry of our lives would be that the world would know you and that they would have life in your name. We trust you. We thank you. Be here with us now as we worship you. In Jesus' great name, amen.